Thanks for being a part of the Fearless Army. Drop us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and when you do, ask me a question in the comments. Each week, we'll compile your best questions and answer them on air. with Jason Whitlock. I'm Jason Whitlock, your host. Thank you for joining me. Awesome, awesome to be here. Awesome show planned for you today. Uh, we're going to talk with Jamaica Michelle, Delano Squires, and the Korean co-sell Steve Kim. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, Sexy Red and the latest thing going on with her, an interesting article we read in The Root. Uh, <clears throat> before I do all that, I want to take care of uh, one of our great sponsors, of course, Preborn. Last year, because of you, Preborn's network of clinics saw over 58,000 babies saved. Thank you to all who made this possible. Let's celebrate these precious babies. Uh, let me tell you, share a story with you about Antoinette. When she found out she was pregnant, she was in a bad place. She didn't know how she could raise her child on her own. She searched for an abortion clinic, and God led her to a preborn clinic where she met her baby on ultrasound. When she saw her baby and heard the baby's heartbeat, she broke down crying, and the nurse reminded her that babies are a blessing from God. She chose life. Her daughter's name is Treasure because she is a gift from God. Those type stories are repeated over and over and over again across the country wherever preborn clinics are located. You guys hear me talk about preborn virtually every show. You guys know it's part of our worldview with Fearless that life begins at conception. No organization supports that worldview, that belief, that biblical truth better than preborn. They provide that ultrasound, helps convince the woman to make the right choice to keep that baby, and then preborn really steps up, provides diapers and baby food and all the things the baby needs to survive and develop the first two years outside the womb. They save the life inside the womb, and then they provide all the support the baby needs outside of the womb. That's why we love preborn. That's why I keep trying to compel you guys to support preborn right along with me. Uh, for just $28, you can pay for an ultrasound. One ultrasound can change a person's life, can change two or three people's lives, can the baby's life, the mama's life, the daddy's life, the grandmama's life, the aunties and uncles and all that. It can change so many lives. Gentlemen and ladies, there's nothing more important we could do than help preborn save lives. There's two ways to give. Pound 250, say the keyword baby. That's pound 250, keyword baby. Or you can give the way that I like to give. Preborn.com slash fearless. That's preborn.com slash fearless. When you do, drop me a line, drop me a note, inspire me, encourage me, make me cough up some more money. I, I give monthly. But also, randomly, you guys fire me up. I give even more. Uh, I hope you guys are doing the same. Uh, let's get to uh, today's show. Uh, <clears throat> and Shamika's going to join me here uh, now or here in a second. She's waiting patiently. But I want to give a little context. Uh, the Root, it's a website that is targeted towards African Americans. It's pretty far left. Uh, about as far left as you can go. 
it's written an article that kind of caught our attention this week and kind of blew my mind. Uh, uh, Dustin Siebert is sexy red destroying black culture or empowering black women is the headline. We analyze the role that P-U-S-S-Y rappers play in the black community. Wow. Just that headline that <laughs> P rappers and the role they play in the black community. Wow. That, that's amazing. They should play no role. And, and uh, I'm not. Anyway, uh, this article starts. Sexy Red is testing limits. Is testing limits. What locks is to to, to a toasted bagel. Last weekend, the St. Louis rapper posted a video to her 3.5 million Instagram followers showing her with a pregnant belly bending over for a photo as a man, presumably a fan, buries his face in her butt. She says, my bad if my booty stank before laughing out loud. The 25 year old is currently at the head of a newer subgenre of black women rappers peddling so-called P-rap a brand of wildly sexually explicit hip-hop over trap beats. Popular P-rappers include Lotto and Glorilla, who lean more strongly into Ronch than, say, Cardi B, Megan Thee Stallion, or Nicki Minaj. And that's why I just, I stop and go, are we sure Sexy Red's any more raunchy than Cardi B or Megan Thee Stallion? Did I not see a song called WAP? Did I not see Hillary Clinton interviewing Megan Thee Stallion about the song WAP? Wet, A-P-U-S-S-Y. Anyway, uh, Shamika, uh, help me figure out here. Is, is this article from The Root? And by the way, I'm sorry for saying this, and I probably it's probably not appropriate to say, given the conversation we're about to have. But I'm going to try to say it because it's the first thing that just ran through my mind. My grandmother. Lovey Kennedy, we called her Mama Lovey. Anytime she saw me when I was a little kid, she pits my cheeks and say, you cute as a button. And right now when I look at you in that fearless jacket and everything, I, I just want to pinch your cheeks and say, you cute as a button. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, your thoughts on Sexy Red and, and just whether or not, is this a good sign like that, the root is actually questioning how far we're going with rap. You know, it may be a step in the right direction, but it still seems disingenuous to try and say that Glorilla or Sexy Red and, and Lotto are different from Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion. You're just kind of separating the ones that you like the best or the ones that are the multi-platinum um, artists and, and letting them have a pass because it's all the same to me. You know, you may see one as more classy. I don't know how. They are all the same. And so I just think that, you know, it's it's the root trying to say, oh, well, you know, we said something. We came out about our concerns, but they aren't really, because if you were really concerned, you would call them all out across the board and you would be honest that all of their music promotes promiscuity. It's not just the the ones that, you know, sexy red. I don't understand why they're trying to make this all fall on her shoulders. You even see artists such as Beyonce, who used to have very classy music, now 
lean a lot more into sex and a lot of her songs now I'm like, who is Harpo? Who this woman? Because I don't know who she is some of the times with some of this that she puts out because it's so sexual. So I just think they're trying to say that they're saying something about it, but not really. <laughs> they're not. And it's like rap is the elephant in the room that, you know, websites like The Root and black people in the media, none of us want to address it. We, we, we don't want to talk about what it has normalized. Uh, again, in order to sound authentically black, it's almost you have to curse and you have to use the N word. And and to me, that's the uh, influence that rap has had on black people and redefining black people. And, and so, you know, at my age and, and anybody with a brain that looks at the history of rap, this has all been inevitable. There was only one place where this music could drag the rest of the industry and eventually drag the culture. I, I mean, <clears throat> literally, they started out this article, quote, or Sexy Red started out. An article, what woman would say, my bad if my booty stank? What woman would say that? I, I could see a group of boys in a locker room farting and say, <laughs> but, but women just, but, but I, I just, I, I don't, I, 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 this level of, I don't even, because it is beyond raunchiness, it, it's, it's a level of classlessness. It's just amazing to me that, that we got here and that it's allowed and it's tolerated. And, and we've seen Sexy Red in real time become a phenomenon. I mean, it, it was, I bet you if we went back a year ago, she had 200,000 Twitter followers or maybe 80,000 Twitter followers. I'm not sure when I first took notice. Now she has 3.5 million on Instagram. I'm sure she's got more than a million over Twitter and she's yet to make one legitimate song, in my opinion. She's going back to Cat Williams. She's another plant, another installation. And it makes me think that everybody in the rap world is a plant. You know, I will say when it comes to Cardi B or Meg The Stallion, I don't think they would ever say my bad if my booty stink. If anything, they would want us to think <laughs> it oozes, you know, the smell of strawberries all day. <laughs> so um, they are a lot more uh, disgusting, I would say, than some of the other more sexually, um, you know, overt songs. But one thing I will say, Jason, is I've been asking myself this question. If if women should have been even accepted into rap from the very beginning, because, yes, we have the MC lights and we have the Queen Latifahs. But I went back to the sequence, which is noted as the first female rap group, even their song talked about sex. And so they go, you know, Blondie goes off and tells, uh, you know, her measurements, which, you know, um, 
It is the perfect body. She says she gets more sex than a cat chase mice. Um, you had Cheryl the Pearl who says, you know, I've got such sexy bedroom eyes. They came in the game kind of using what their mama gave them or, you know, using what they had to get what they want. I even think about salt and pepper's push it. That was sexual. And so we have progressed as women in rap. Like, how could we not end up here? You know, I think about, um, you know, LL talked about his radio. He talked about I Need Love. It just seemed that although we had these rappers that would maybe brag on their, you know, parts here and there, they kind of started out talking about, I dress better or my radio is bigger than yours or, you know, I got more gold or maybe even women. But the women came out the gate pushing sex. And so I'm not surprised that we ended up with the little Kims and now the sexy reds because nobody stepped in to say, hey, give me something else. MC Light posted a picture of her and I guess her new you know, boo recently. And there were people saying that they thought she was gay, although she has been married and now divorced because MC Light didn't give us sex, sex, sex. People just automatically assumed she was gay when what she was really trying to give us was lyrical content. You know, I think her and Queen Latifah offered something different, but we never really saw them as, you know, sexy or, you know, people feel like Queen Latifah is beautiful. Both of them are. We know that Queen Latifah is gay, but, you know, they just didn't get the celebration, I think, that so many of these other female rappers got because they weren't constantly pushing sex. So where we are is we should have known we would end up here because you got to one up the next person. If one person is talking about push it, then you got to come with something better than that, you know, um, to, to even be seen as, as better. That's all we've allowed them to do is really push one aspect of themselves. And we've bought it up, just licked it right on up like a cat licks milk. I mean, we, we have eaten it up completely. So I mean, I, 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 Sexy red is a ancillary issue, in my opinion, and and virtually all of the female rappers are an ancillary issue. I blame men. I blame the male rappers. We sexualize the music. We buffooned up the music. We we made it a contest. We made it lyrical pornography. The other day, I think I was in a conversation with you all. And I couldn't remember the Jay-Z song that I, I, I'm just got to be honest, I used to love. I, it came out in 2007. Give it to me. I think the actual song, name of the song is I Just Want to Love You. But it was Give It To Me, that sweet, that nasty, that gushy stuff. And, and I can remember loving that song. But it's, it's just a form of lyrical pornography. And, and I blame the men. It, it, Hip hop was started by men. It was dominated by men. If men had had held on to some self-respect and say, nah, I'm not gonna take that check to say that, 
you know, it, it would, but, but, and I, I, I gotta be careful because I don't want to make excuses, but you, t- the, these are sexy red to me is probably not that intelligent, probably doesn't have very many options. And so they wave a bag in front of her. Hey, you can make money by doing this. And they do the same thing with the men. In, in terms of, you know, these aren't a group of rocket scientists rapping. They, they, they ran the college-educated rappers out a long time ago. When I was a kid, there was a group called the College Boys. They would never have that now. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and so these are kids without options, and, and the industry rewards them for this. But, you know, I don't want to run away from who the people are with the bag that are uh, paying for this, but at some point, we as black people, as the consumers, as the people who are being denigrated, we could put a stop to this. And and it's like it should be being led by the church and Christians of, of saying, "Nah, we're not we're not good with this." But you know, we see we just haven't mustered the courage to say that because again, if if you if you say you're against it. You're not black. And and people are looking at you with a side eye. Absolutely. I don't think there's a more um, sexual, lyrical porn song than the Ghetto Boys, The Other Level, from the We Can't Be Stopped album. I don't know if you've ever heard it, Jason, but that is the ultimate. And look how long ago that was. I think that came out in 91. Um but yeah, what's the name of the song? Um, the other, the other level? level, yeah, the other level. Bushwick Bill is the the one that yeah. has it, but it's on the Ghetto yeah. Boys. We can't be stopped. Um, but I men used to could have, album. yeah, yeah, men could have said, "We don't want to hear this. We need y'all to, um, you know, talk about something else." I saw somebody, you know, several people over the last few years have said, why don't y'all ever talk about being wives? Why don't you ever rap about your children? Why don't you ever rap about anything else? And I think if they had, would people have flocked to it the way they have this ratchetness and this foolishness? So, yes, I do believe there's a group of people that's, you know, pushing the buttons and saying, hey, I'll give you a bag. But what about they couldn't do it if, if it wasn't selling, if people weren't actually going out and purchasing this and showing up to the concerts and trying to mimic these people. We have these generations of women who have no values. They haven't been instilled with values and morals. And so, of course, if they feel like this is how we're going to get a bag or this is how we're going to get money, let me talk about this. Let me rap about this. And many of us, you know, not here on this show, but many people our age just say, hey, you know, whatever. We don't care. I don't see the pushback that we got in the 90s when it came to gangster rap, when they said, hey, NWA, if you go on the stage and say this, you're getting arrested or you're getting fined. We don't have that coming from the people 
from the lawmakers now or for the people from the people with the big platforms. They're not saying if Sexy Red goes on stage or Cardi B or Meg Thee Stallion, if they go on stage and they say P-U-S-S-Y or if it's sexually is explicit, we're going to stop the show. We're not getting that. They even used to do that to Bobby Brown and Bobby will at least, at least have his pants on, you know, but there was a more pushback than what we give now. It's almost like we've just thrown up our hands and not fighting for the generations coming after us. I don't know. We're tired. We're afraid of being canceled. You know, people say all the time, I don't care, you know, what people think of me. Well, apparently you do, because even in the black church, the black church is silent. You know, I look at people now and I'm starting to ask myself, what's the purpose of the church? We have more churches than we have ABC stores, but yet we have more alcoholics than we have Christians. What is the church doing now? You know, are they actually preaching sin or are they just trying to keep the lights on, keep the doors open? Are you just saying whatever feels good to people so that you can still maintain some type of career? A lot of these pastors, they're just career preachers, but they're not really putting the word out here that's going to, you know, save souls. And so I just think a lot of people have become quiet and complacent. And why? What are we going to do? You know, we have this show, but we're, we're just a small piece of what really needs to take place when people start saying enough is enough. I, I go back to it. And Shemika, I'm going to let you go. Uh, thank you so much. We're going to move on to Delano. But I go back to the E. Michael Jones interview we did last week where he talked about how cleverly they define sex and, and pornography as a freedom issue rather than an obscenity issue. And, and so we've been given the freedom to uh, explore every aspect of sexual lust, sexual perversion, sexual pornography, and hey, that's freedom. That, that's what America's all about. And you know, we, we've legalized everything uh, in the name of freedom, and it's a mistake. There, there has to be some morality lines that have to be redrawn in America if you're going to have a properly functioning, healthy society. Uh, we'll hear from Delano Squires next. Name an Adele song. Uh, I can think I can hum it. I don't know. I, I like her though. It's <laughs> every time you answer the phone, you say an Adele song. Hello. From the outside. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. You're right. All right, welcome back. Uh, let's bring in Delano Squires, Professor D. Welcome back to the show. Uh, D, I saw you tweeting about this earlier <laughs> in the week. 
and I've, I've just got done talking to Shamika about it, and, and The Root has an article, Is Sexy Red Destroying Black Culture or Empowering Black Women? We analyze the role that P-U-S-S-Y rappers play in the mm. black community. Woo! Uh, the fact that they play any role in any community is, is frightening, but as I've been saying, the, I, I can't blame or single out Sexy Red, and I don't like the distinctions they're making as if like, well, this is somehow worse than Cardi B and Megan the Stallion, mm. and like, no, Cardi B and Megan the Stallion, their heroin or their cocaine and Sexy Red is coke or whatever's worse, meth, I don't know, fentanyl, uh, but you had to be hooked on cocaine before you moved to fentanyl, and, mm. and what do they think was gonna happen with female rappers? What, Little Kim started this, or you can go back even further. Anyway, your thoughts? Yeah, so one, I, I was surprised that The Root even um, raised this question, because sometimes even raising the question gets you accused of playing, quote unquote, respectability politics, because apparently um, when you have respect for yourself and you have some sense of dignity, that's a bad thing. Uh, but, but I think, you know, my, my general thought is that Sexy Red herself is not destroying the black community. As I said on, online, Sexy Red is a symptom of a, a, a greater set of problems. And I don't call it, I don't call this genre of rap what they call it. I call it whore hop. Um, and in the same way we had gangster rap uh, for a period of time, particularly in the, in the early 90s, through the, the 2000s, I think whore hop has taken over. And really what's happened is that um, the women who grew up seeing the Lil' Kim and Foxy Brown and more so seeing video vixens from their perspective being um, degraded in hip hop, right? And it's all hip hop is so misogynistic. They said, well, well, if we do it to ourselves, it's empowering, right? When, when the man makes us, you know, spread our cheeks open for the camera and throws dollar bills, then, you know, that's degrading. But when we spread our own cheeks open, then this is self-empowerment. Um, and, and to me, as I said, this is a symptom of much, of, of much broader issues. And on the cultural side, I, I would say it's a couple of things. One, and I said this online, um, in large swaths of the black community, and particularly in the black commentariat, so the, lead, the black leadership class, however you define that, but the root is part of it, the griot, the NAACP, BET, you know, the black politicians, the pundits, the professors, the preachers, the performers, so on and so forth. Um, unlicensed and unapproved political opinions are worse than you know degrading and self-destructive lyrics. And that's why in the piece, when it said that Sexy Red does stupid crap, and I'm, I'm using my word, the link to that was when she said she supports Trump. And that, that was actually the strongest sort of condemnation that, that the author had for her is her support of Trump. But but I think bigger than that is that um, Sexy Red's sort of ascendancy, her, Sukihana, all these other women who have no talent whatsoever, shows that our cultural immune system is not working. And, and if I had to put it this way, I'd say we have cultural AIDS. And what I mean is, um, the AIDS virus is not what kills you. It's other viruses that come in and your, your immune system's been weakened. And when you have a group of people, right, who can't even expel degenerates, prostitutes, pimps, gangsters, shooters, killers, drug dealers from among its sort of 
influ- uh, influential and leadership ranks, what that says is that their immune system is not working. Uh, and, and that to me is what's in Jason, the 1920s, Sexy Red, even if she performed this type of music. Right. And, and there were people who were doing some real body music in the early sort of part of the 20th century. She would be nowhere near any sort of position of cultural influence. She wouldn't be at the BET Awards. She wouldn't be interviewing the president. She wouldn't have any any music on streaming or platforms. She would be a guilty pleasure that you had to go to some, you know, juke joint to enjoy in person. And that would be it. But we have elevated her. And in the course of a couple of months, she was on every sideline. She was at the Jets game. She was taking pictures with the Boston Celtics. She was being honored at the BET Awards. And and that shows you that, um, culturally speaking, the black community does not have an ability or willingness to um, fight infection and disease within our body. Uh, And that's why people like Sexy Red continue to spread. And each one, and and, and I call this phenomenon because I first heard of Sexy Red from Sukihana. I first saw Sukihana connected to Cardi B. And I call this quid pro ho, where each successive person puts the other one on. And, and, and that's how you go from one to the next. <laughs> <laughs> quid pro ho. So uh, coming off that, I want to make a serious point. Not that you weren't making a serious point. But <clears throat> D... What we're looking at, to me, is internalized racism. And, mm. and, and, and you're going to have to go all the way back, and we, as journalists, if we want to really put this in proper context, is, and, and it's so big picture, it, it, but it's so obvious to me, is that there's been a group of black people that decided we don't want to end racism. Mm. We want to benefit from it. We don't want to Mm. end anti, we don't want to end any racism, but we certainly don't want to end anti-black racism. We just want to profit off of it. And so, and and this has been going on for a hundred years, let's say. And so if we go back to minstrel shows that black mm-hmm. people said we didn't like in the 1910s, 1920s, whatever, and, and, and we, we don't like it, quit doing it, it's racist. But what we've said over the last 50, 60 years is, no, if we can profit off minstrel shows, right. we will perform them ourselves, we'll put on blackface, and we'll do it and as long as we can benefit from the denigration of black people, we're good with it. That's what rap music is about. That's what, uh, again, every comedian, and I love Dave Chappelle and all these guys, but if you listen to comedians, black ones, every one of them, seemingly, I'm exaggerating, but all the mainstream ones, they're so dependent upon using the N-word. Mm. I watched a Mike Epps deal talking about Cat Williams, and let's say I watched five minutes, and let's say he said a thousand words in that five minutes. 350 of those words were nigga. Mm. Everything was dependent upon him saying the N-word. And, and, and it's like, no, we don't want the N-word to go away. We want to make it a moneymaker for us. 
And that's what we've done in music. That's what we've done in comedy. That's what we've done in art. And 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 I, I look the minstrel show deal has just been overtaken. Or who, and whoever I, that's why I want to do the re, the research. Who actually came up with minstrel shows? Who was profiting off of it? And all they did was like, hey, we'll, black people, we'll cut you in on it. And and instead of uh, a white person putting on blackface, you can just put on blackface. You can play your own clown, and we'll pay you for it. And everybody's all good with it. I mean, Jason, you 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 hit more nails on the head than than a, than a guy working at Lowe's. I mean, I I think when it's particularly particularly when you talked about the minstrel shows, right? Um, I had a visceral reaction because I and I've said this in presentations. I've you know when I'm talking about restoring the black family, and I talk about the role that media play in propagating images and the role that images and not just images, movie, um, television, music play in shaping perception, um, shaping norms, shaping values and shaping beliefs. But I will put up a picture of, of, you know, of, of someone in blackface. Right. And then I'll put up a picture of Snoop Dogg when he was at the I think, 2002 VMAs, when he had these two black women in sheer sort of sequin negligee type outfits with dog, dog collars around their neck. And I say, our, our ancestors fought against this one thing and now their grandchildren and great-grandchildren are saying, no, we, to your point, we want to profit off this next thing. Um, and and I, I will say this, I think as much as people talk about the 20th century as a fight for civil rights, it also was a fight for the black public image. And and even today, before before I left home, my wife, you know, she's redoing my office and she bought me to a print from Gordon Parks because she knows I like Gordon Parks because Gordon Parks chronicled black life across the country um, and, and sort of was a world class photographer. And, and so much of what black folk were doing in the 20th century was saying, no, we we don't want, you know, the, the, the blackface and the minstrelsy. Um, now, some some may have, but a lot of them were fighting against it. Uh, and fighting against negative depictions in the media, right? The depictions of sambos and and pickaninnies and and all these other sort of with the the big red lips and the dark skin and the watermelon in the mouth. I mean, these are all things that black folk fought against. And then to your point, you get to the late '80s, um, and when when NWA starts to to to, to again literates music with the N word and call the B word and all these other sort of derogatory terms, that, that sellout spirit hopped on us one more time and we've been bewitched by it for 30 plus years. And I, and I remember, and, and I, I grew up in New York in the 90s, so I'm, I'm a child of hip hop, but I remember watching, this was probably around 2003 when BT used to have BT uncut and they would play that Nelly video, Tip Drill. And I remember, like it was yesterday, I, I shouldn't because, you know, but I still remember it. And when he sw- swiped the credit card down the woman's backside and she started to shake it up and down. And I'm saying to myself, now, if a white rapper did this, all hell would break loose. And, and to your point, Jason, one of the things that's evidently clear to me is that even the most pro-blackity black, 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 black folks, still care more about about what white people say about us than what we say about ourselves. Because Eminem, for as much as he's beloved in the black community, has never even let N.I.G. Uh, approach the front of his lips, right? Now, he, he talking about killing his mama, his baby mama. He talking about slapping his daughter around. He talking about all sorts of 
um, you know, grotesque and dark sort of things in his music. The, the NIG has never come close to his lips. And if it did, Eminem would be canceled the next day. But if you're a black man, you could say, shoot this N word, kill this N word, slap this B word, smack this H word. And we just say, oh, well, you know, it's capitalism. It's making a lot of black folk money. And, and that's one of the things that frustrates me about the black left and the black right, because they're conservatives who will make the same arguments, the same arguments. Oh, this person is making a lot of money, so we should be fine with it. Look, they give back to Pee Wee football. They hand out turkeys at Christmas time. So it's, we, we've, we do this and, and it shows that we have no standards for ourselves and the true north. For, for the black leadership class is always what white people think about black folks in the same way that the true north for the feminists is whatever the men are doing. And at a certain point, we have to have a sense of identity that says we will not promote, engage or tolerate or defend any aspect of culture that demeans us, degrades us and promotes violence amongst our men, degradation towards our women and drug abuse among our youth. But we are far from that point. Um, right now. So going back to the root, what I find interesting, because I didn't know as it relates to the root and particular black media, I didn't know that there was a line that you could not cross. I, I thought mm. they had zero standards. And, and literally they're, they're like, they're just open to the question of like, Oh, maybe sexy red has gone too far here. And it's just a question that, mm. you know, they're, they're not sure. But I didn't even know they even questioned it, that there was too far that you could go. And so I, I'm almost willing to call this a tiny bit of, of, of progress that like, oh, they think that there potentially is some line. And maybe when it turns into 12 year old girls, Mm. doing this same music, maybe that's the line, maybe. But it, they'll throw that out as a question. Should toddlers <laughs> be able to do P-U-S-S-Y rap? Is, is that too mm. far? They'll, it'll, question mark? Is that too, but, but I, 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 I'm saying sincerely that I, I just thought like there is no line and, and the root is actually saying, well, maybe there is. And, and, and I don't even know what inspired them to even ask this question. I mean, Sexy Red has been on a tear for the last, you know, couple of months. And, and every every few weeks, it seems like she tries to do something to one up herself. I will say this. The root definitely has a line. Um, and that line is always politics, because that's the line of the black sort of, you know, intellectual class. It's we, we don't care how you, you, you don't have to have any talent. You can talk about sex all the time and the color of the different orifices of your body. But as soon as you say, well, some black folk might vote for Trump or I like Trump, then it's, oh, these people are saying stupid crap. Why do we listen to artists and so on and so forth? So that's clearly their line. Um, I think what's happening is that you have a generation of, of black folk, I say between 30 and 45, who are getting older, who are seeing the quality of the music degrading. And at a certain point, um, they can't deny, you know, that, OK, may maybe this is going too far. I saw Mark Lamont Hill, you know, on, on the Griot. He had a, a guy, I think he's, you know, he, he's the guy's in tech and the professor and, you know, he's big into hip hop. 
And they were talking about when Suki Hana was, I think, twerking at some award show. And the guy, because because the thing is, Jason, particularly when men talk about this, the guys on that side, they know that they have um, a chain that can get yanked. So what they do, their arguments die a death by a thousand uh, paper cuts, caveats, I should say. So, so well, you know, well, come on, sister, that's too much. But but I don't want to tell the black woman how to live her life because, you know, I, and I don't want to practice respectability politics. So they, they can't actually come out and say what it is that they feel. But but I, I think people are starting to wake up. And, you know, these types of articles are actually one silver lining is that when you talk about the corrosive impact of hip hop culture, the excesses of hip hop culture, it is one of the only times that you can get black folk to talk about the importance of an intact family structure. Because at the end of that root piece, it said, well, you know, it's parents' responsibility to raise their children and you can't put that on artists. <laughs> and if if you if your daughter doesn't want to marry some dusty drug dealer, good on you, mom, you've done your job. There's no other instance where these people talk about family. None. And part of it is because th- that part of black culture has um, a severe allergy to responsibility. So, so if if we're critiquing female artists, their epipen is. But, but what about the men? If we're t- critiquing the impact that this has on black culture, the epipen is respectability politics. We shouldn't care what white people think. And and if you're critiquing the impact that artists have on shaping the minds of young people, then it's oh. It's parents' responsibility to raise their kids. There's no other context in which they do that. And I know because I read The Root a fair amount of time and I've written for The Root. So I have a sense of their editorial direction. So in the same way that you, when you talk about quote unquote black on black crime, all these guys come out and say, oh, but what about white people? White people commit 84% of the homicides against one another. This is the same thing when it comes to, to black media and black culture. So yeah, they have a line, it's politics. But I think they're starting to say, you know what, maybe this is going a little too far. Milano, great job. Thank you so much. Enjoy Thank you, your weekend. Thanks for joining us. Uh, look, you, you're not going to believe this, but Steve Kim wants to weigh in on this. Told you guys this yesterday. Uh, Steve Kim, the Korean Cosell. Next. All right, welcome back. We just went from Delano, the professor, to now we're going to reduce the IQ by 50 to 60 points and bring in the Korean Cosell, uh, the only Asian I know that scored less than a 1,500 on the SAT. Uh, but he is someone with encyclopedic knowledge of the whole rap music world. And I just, for the fun of it, to lighten up the show a little bit, I just wanted to get Steve's take on Sexy Red and what's going on with P-U-S-S-Y rappers and the, uh, the black commuter tie, uh, where I know Steve probably owns several liquor stores and uh, dry cleaners. 
uh, throughout the black community. So uh, your, your thoughts on Sexy Red, uh, Steve? Well, first of all, in terms of my SATs, lucky I wasn't a good enough athlete. I would have been Prop 48. Uh, you know, I don't, <laughs> this, this is really interesting what has happened to hip-hop. Uh, I, I was a fan growing up uh, during more or less the formative stages of the genre when it started to go mainstream, right around the mid-'80s. And, you know, I'm, I kind of look at, look at my listening habits on YouTube music because when I work out, my phone actually becomes my modern-day Walkman. And, and this pattern is very, very established and clear. Everything that I listen in terms of music, not just rap or hip-hop, really probably goes from about the mid-'70s to probably the early 2000s. I don't think it's just hip-hop that has devolved. We have to be fair about this. I think all music has in a lot of ways. Specifically as it relates to rap music, there was a time that it was very educational, very uplifting, very entertaining, and, and very conscious. Um, but now I, I think it's just become decadence and also very, very demonic to a certain degree. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact there was a time when I grew up that those who were performing were actually college educated. I don't think people realize how many of these guys actually got their upper education. I think DMC went to St. John's. I remember him putting it in a song and I thought that was unbelievable. So every time I think of St. John's, I think of Chris Mullen, Mark Jackson, Louis Carnesecca, and DMC. That's my St. John's. Mount Rushmore, because quite frankly, I don't know anyone else that went to St. John's. Uh, Ron Artest, shout out to him, too. So basically, when you look at a lot of these guys, I don't even think people realize Flavor Flav went to college. And I think that stuns people. So, and it used to be something that they Hold were not, on, hold on. That stuns me. Flavor Flav went to college? Yes, not Ivy League, but he was actually a DJ at a college before he met Chuck D. Look it up. Yes. I've seen Public Enemy documentaries. And he actually did go to school beyond high school. Yes, it's all there. It's documented. And so there was a time when these performers would talk about their education. They came from working class. A lot of them, some of them came from two-parent households, nuclear families. Somewhere along the way, that became almost like a black mark, really. And you could not or would not be marketed as such. You couldn't get radio play. And I think it's sad. And when you hear sexy red she is now being pushed and you and you talk about people that are placed in positions um now she's talking about her anal cavities being beige or whatever uh it's sad what it's devolved into and that is the word that i would use devolved and unfortunately as someone that grew up in la and still lives here i i think west coast hip-hop had a lot to do with it. i think they are guilty in, in terms of pushing what became of this particular form of music Steve, it's it's. I love that you made that point because I've made it many times in writing that you know at one point rap was KRS-One and Public Enemy and again there were other guys selling maybe more albums than X-Clan or Public Enemy or or, or KRS-One, but and I don't whatever year F the Police came out, that's what changed. Yeah. Yeah, that's what changed rap music. And and it, it branded NWA as if they had something important to say. And and it's like I've challenged, I had a young person once tell me, you know, that NWA, man, they were revolutionaries. They were 
anti-establishment. They were this, they were that. And I said, they put out two albums. Write down every song and listen to every song and tell me which one of them is positive. Which one of them had some sort of message, some sort of challenge to the establishment. I go, there's only one song that could possibly have that claim, and that's F the Police. The rest of it is incredibly pornographic and over the top and, and uh, violent and negative. I'm just like, but the media gave NWA this brand, and, and Dr. Dre's a billionaire, Ice Cube's probably nearly a billionaire, uh, Easy e would have been a billionaire uh, if he hadn't died. Who, who am I, who, is, is there another big name? Dr. Dre, Ice Cube, Easy. e what was it, Yella? Was that the other Yella. guy? He kind of yeah. fell off the face of the earth. MC Ren, he kind of fell off the face of the earth, but they got movies made about them, and, and they're these heroic, iconic figures for making lyrical porn. And, and I, did I listen to it? Yes. I, yeah, I, well, I was the, as far as I know, I was the first guy on Ball State's campus with their Straight Outta Compton album. And, and I regret it and, and couldn't see where this whole thing was going, but... From I remember Gangsta Gangsta is the first song I heard. My f buddy from high school, Mike Atkins, gave it to me, and I drove it straight up to Ball State and started playing it for all my friends. I had no idea that this is where it was going to end up as a kid, but uh, it's, it's here now and it's sad. But see, when, when you say, because, well, certainly R&B music has devolved. Yes. Um, that too. It, it, it certainly has. Yeah, it certainly. Because it's so influenced by rap. In terms of rappers rap on R&B songs, and now R&B singers drop the N-word, and, you know, they don't make love. They screw or F. It, it's, Jay, I, we're so old people. But, yeah. I'm going to make this point. And I know a lot of people have said, well, you got to believe corporate America. It's these evil forces pushing this music. I think there's a lot of truth to that, but let, let's take a look at MC Hammer, also known as Stanley Burrell, the most famous bat boy in baseball history, was Charlie O'Finley's spy in the clubhouse, it turned out, right? He becomes MC Hammer. I remember him. I thought, I think he's one of the most influential entertainers of any genre. I mean, when his album came out in late 88, and this is before he got to the gaudy costumes. He was just this guy up there in the Bay Area. I've seen old music videos of his in troop jackets. I mean, he's running man his butt off. Oh, my God. So he is incredibly entertaining, but he's got more and more popular. The chorus of criticism was not from white people, wasn't from people like me, was not from people in the suburbs. It was fellow rappers and black people. Let's be honest. And there was an incredible pressure. Nobody called him a sellout in my community. We enjoyed his music. OK, nobody called him a coon, a, a dancing freak or whatever, whatever bad term they use. Never came out of our mouth. There was this incredible pressure that, oh, my God, he's almost too positive. He's bubblegum. He's pop. And I'm thinking to myself, what's wrong with that? Because he doesn't do shoot him up, shoot him up naysayer music. I mean, he's talking about prey. Uh, and again, whether he lived that lifestyle or not, I don't know. But there was a positive messaging. But if he would have talked about hitting up girls and getting eight of them pregnant, I don't know if there would have been that criticism. Let's be honest. And I know people are going to be upset that I say it. But you know what? I don't care. It's the truth. You cannot argue this point. And I thought it was really interesting because this song actually comes up on my 
YouTube music algorithm, and it actually is a good song, uh, Pumps to the Bump. In the mid-90s, I think Hammer, as his, as his popularity waned, what happened was he had to go gangsta, S-T-A, right? And, he, and I think he was produced by Dr. Dre. So he stopped dressing like a genie and all the parachute pants, all the flashy colors. He started to wear baggy dickies. And I'm thinking to myself, well, which way? Hold on. Who's Hammer here? Which guy is this? Is it the guy that had a lot of fun, that, that produced a lot of albums, helped a lot of people in the community, um, never tried to act like anything he wasn't, although I've heard he was actually the one guy that would actually fight. He was the one guy you did. That was the irony of it all. But then he felt the pressure. And again, I don't think it's from white corporate America to go hood. And it didn't really work. And, and actually, that those couple songs, like, it's all good. I enjoy those songs. I don't look at it as the authentic hammer, though. But again, where did that pressure come from to turn? You know, I, I met Hammer <laughs> last summer. And, and I think I'll have a chance to engage with him again in 2024. I wonder if anybody's ever written a good book on Hammer. Because mm. there could be a good book, a good movie on, on Hammer. And... And kind of because, and I think I think and say that because of this American fiction movie. Have you heard us? Did you hear us talk about the American fiction movie uh, no. earlier this week? You should really go see it, Steve. You would enjoy it. It's it's a movie that is about this. It's some black dude that's a writer that basically has to pretend to be ghetto I to get his books published yeah. and for him to sell and to get a movie. But but. As you were talking about Hammer and, and the negative feedback he got from other rappers and the media and, you know, so-called black, the black public, I, start, I started thinking about Will Smith and mm. how much flack he took. Yes. And that if, if he had been celebrated for his style of music, fun, clean, if he had been celebrated, I know his music sold and he became a big movie star, but if if that image had been celebrated and there wasn't a bunch of pressure on Will Smith to change or I wonder if he would have just been a different person than than catching well, all the flack he did because there is an inter one second, let me finish this point because yeah. it's important. I want to be heard in context. There is an internal conflict that black men have, black boys have, because there is so much blowback if you don't go the criminal gangster route. Right. I'm talking about even as a college student or even as a sports writer, or even there's so much pressure on us to live up to some stereotype that you sit around sometimes and you question yourself and then you gotta be, you really gotta get to my age where, where you're just like, I don't care what you think. I, you're the idiot and move on. But I'm just wondering if we didn't change Will Smith's mm. trajectory in life with all the criticism and pushback he got for being the goody two-shoe rapper. Well, look, I remember when Will Smith won one of those music awards. This was in the late 80s. And Ice-T, a guy that I actually like, actually said, yeah, he won the Bubblegum Pop Award. It was very derisive. That type of attitude was very pervasive, even before the East Coast, West Coast thing. Here's the thing about Will Smith. I remember buying his albums on wax. It was, it was, it was called uh, The Fresh Prince and DJ Jazzy Jeff. And his biggest breakout song 
And I, it was not his best song. It was Parents Just Don't Understand. I mean, that was a popular song in every suburb, right? But I actually thought he had a lot of other good songs that are a little bit more of a dance club beat. But I, I you know, it's funny. The great thing about being a non-black hip-hop fan or what I was, there's, there's no pressure not to like songs like Men in Black. I find that to be a catchy song. I still play it when I work out on the treadmill. Uh, the song that he made about Miami, love that song. They used to play that at the Miami games at the Orange Bowl. In fact, uh, the Sensations, which is like the cheerleaders or the dance crew of the Hurricanes, they would actually do a routine right in the middle of the field. It was a catchy song. Everyone got into it. But then it was one of those songs that if you admitted that you liked it around the homies, they probably looked at you funny. Why? I, I, I don't understand it. Well, I get it. But I've never really agreed with that thought process. And But I think with Will Smith, a lot of the criticism comes after he was Hollywoodized. The marriage to Jada his behavior afterwards. I think as a rapper, people accepted what he was. And I respected the fact that he seemed to have fairly middle-class roots, never strayed from it, never tried to act like he was Al Capone on the streets. I think there was at least an authenticity to what he had. Um, Jason, you talk about another group that was very conscious, that I enjoyed. And I remember that they would get play on some of the video shows with like D Barnes. I remember that show late at night. Um, they played on Yo! MTV Raps once in a while. And they had some catchy beats, but their message was never going to be mainstream. Poor Righteous Teachers. Every once in a while, I'll punch them up. They would never get airplay nowadays. They would never gain popularity. They would never. They were almost too positive. They are probably too educated. Uh, but I, I remember when hip-hop was fun. It was actually fun. You know what I saw recently, Jason, that I really enjoyed? On Showtime. And you can punch it up on their on-demand. Bismarcky. If you look at Bismarcky, I thought he was very authentic. He was just this big guy, very garrulous, very personality-filled, but he was fun. He never tried to be too serious. You kind of knew what he was. He was the human beatboxer, the entertainer. And you take a look at his roots, he never actually strayed from it. I don't think that he felt any pressure to be anything other than Bismarcky. I wish we had more of that because, quite frankly, I don't think that exists anymore. You can't make a Biz Markey reference without referencing the song that now I'm, it's on the tip of my tongue, his most popular song. Vapors? Uh, come on, Steve. No, vapors. not Vapors. Nobody beats the Biz? No, it's not. No. Picking burgers? Picking burgers? <laughs> oh, girl, oh, got you it. got what I need. But you yes. say you say you just a friend. Right, yeah, there it is. Of, there it is. And that was, he had about 10 other songs. That were hits, because that came out, I believe, in the spring of 1990. But from about 86 to 89, he had other songs like Nobody Beats the Biz and the Vapors that I believe are actually much higher on the Pantheon. Uh, but I, I remember in the 80s when it was fun, like, people are going to kill me for this. There, this is a song that I play all the time because it reminds me of the childhood that I had in Valencia, California, before I moved to Montebello. The Super Bowl Shuffle. 85 Bears. I think it's a funny song. I have no problems admitting to people, yeah, I like that song. Because at that point in that era, Jason, they sparked something where every sports team across America would make their own rap video. Some of them were bad. Some of them, 86 Rams, had a song called Let's Ram It. Eric Dickerson actually could flow a little bit. <laughs> I, I, I like played that. We used to play that on Speak for Yourself. Yeah. Right. I used to call them the Rock Him of Running Backs. It was good. <laughs> All right, for a running back. 
<laughs> but I mean, it, it, I then I just to me it's like when did it become something? When it started to become a blood sport with microphones, I said I'm out. I I, I mean, this is what I don't like is when people say, well, they brought drugs into our neighborhood, and but no one forced you to take it. I made a point. I made a point to say I'm not going to listen to this. I wasn't really down with that East Coast West Coast thing because number one, I'm just a crouching tiger from the suburbs. Um, I can appreciate certain forms of music, but I do understand when it turns bad. I think Tupac, the way certain people worship him, I don't get it, Jason. I just never been aboard with that. Dave, I gotta let you go. We gotta get to the weekend, but. Uh, before we let Steve go, I want to put up this picture of me in the uh, brown suit because I wish I had the picture of me in in the I had a hat that matched it that went along. You guys have seen Troy McSwain on the show, but you, you when we started talking about uh, Will Smith, it reminded me just like, man, I, 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 what a fascinating life I've lived. I forget a lot of things that I experienced. Me and Priest Holmes threw a party. And I can't remember if it was New Year's Eve or what. We threw a party in Kansas City together, Chiefs running back, and Jazzy Jeff was the DJ. Uh, (laughs) And this party was packed. And I was wearing that suit with a hat that matched. And not going to call her name because she's married now. uh, But, man, I had a dime piece with me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can remember Priest Holmes Priest Holmes tried to flirt with her. Uh-oh. Uh, but uh, it was a good party. It was yeah, and one last good thing. Good party, yeah. good memory. Yeah. Uh, one uh, last thing, I'll leave you with this. One of my top 10 hip-hop songs of the 80s, Rock Me Amadeus by Falco. He was this white guy out of Austria who did a song about Beethoven. <laughs> he had bars. That guy could flow. I, I don't understand a single word of that song. But that's another song I play every workout, believe it or not. It's, it's in the algorithm. So anyway, have a great weekend, Jason. That's Steve Kim. Uh, that's it, and that's all for us. Uh, we'll play tomorrow, and uh, we'll see you next week.